Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are um, recording on location today um, in a very, very nice hotel room in West Hollywood, mere blocks away from the Beverly Center. And our guest today is going to be none other than Sonny Liu. And to give you a little bit of background in case you're unfamiliar, Sonny Liu is a comic artist, a painter, and an illustrator. And most of his work, if you're familiar with him at all, is going to be from the New York Times bestseller, The Shadow Hero, with uh, Jean Lun Yang, um, My Faith in Frankie with Mike Carey, and Malinky Robot, and a new Dr. Fate comic series with Paul Levitz, which um, I'm sure we're going to dig into pretty heavily. But um, what makes him really interesting is this new book that he's just put out called The Art of Charlie Chan Hawk Chai. And I probably butchered Chai, but um, it's a, a very interesting biography in which as a character, he recounts someone else's life and the history of comics in Singapore. And what's interesting too is that Sonny it was born in Malaysia and lives in Singapore. We just got very lucky to be able to catch him in, in the middle of this book tour in the United States. He's in town for the Los Angeles Festival of Books. And um, when he leaves here, he'll be in Seattle, Dallas, Philadelphia, I'm sorry, Arkadelphia in Arkansas and Little Rock. And it turns out that that's a case of the tail wagging the dog, that it started out as an Ar- Arkansas thing and then it went backwards. But um, before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to welcome to the program, Mr. Sonny Liu. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. You know, we I, I just explained a little bit about where you come from and a little bit about this, this new book. And we're going to definitely dive headlong into that. But why Charlie Chan Hawk Chai and why this particular project? Well, I'm not sure if this is a spoiler for the readers, but Charlie Chan is actually a fictional <clears throat> character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made him up. Uh, most of his life is just cobbled together from lives of other artists. What were the people that you chose to be the, um, the template for him? I would say mainly um, Tezuka to some extent, Wally Wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those guys who were working for, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> sorry about that. Sure. Uh, working for uh, uh, Marvel back in the, the old days. I think they, they had sort of similar tra- trajectories. Even the ones who were successful uh, near the end of the careers would struggle a little bit financially. Sure. So I, I think that kind of struggle is a co- pretty common experience for a lot of the young, uh, old generation artists. Right, right. And it's interesting in, in if you pick up this book, um, and it's it's a really nice, well-presented, thick volume, and it cascades back into the history of, of Singapore and Malaysia. And you mentioned Tezuka, I think, on the very first page of the book, That's where it's right. like, oh, it yeah. starts with Tezuka. Yeah. And, um, you know, anybody who is a, fam- a fan of manga, um, Tezuka who created Astro Boy and about 500 other characters, 
uh, is considered the god of animation, um, specifically of manga, um, but was very much a storyteller in every single genre and was was telling a lot of very real life stories in addition to his fantastic and science fiction stories and the impact that he had in asia would you'd have to combine maybe five of the top people in the united states like you'd have to say he was jack kirby and he was siegel and schuster and he was bob kane and he was you know art spiegelman you know and in the reach that he had and of course there are museums dedicated to him in japan Almost none of his work ever goes up for sale because most of it is in museums. And so if you do see it hit the open market, if it's not just the sketch, it's actually probably a bootleg, okay. which is good to know, right? Hmm. But um, so you base this fictional character around um, some of the, the people that you had a lot of respect for and you did it kind of masterfully. And it is a, a pretty seamless um, telling of this life of manga and storytelling and so i guess um well how old are you i'm 41 this year he's 41 years old looks like 25 it's kind of amazing kind of amazing i people tell me i look young and I, i'm like i could be your dad and we're i'm like we're almost the same age but um so you've been you've been illustrating for quite some time then that's right uh i think my first like major project was for DC Vertigo back in two zero zero two, I want to say two thousand two. Yeah. And what was the project? Uh, it's called My Faith to Frankie, written by Mike right. Carey. Mike Carey, that's yeah. right. Okay. And um, did that make it into one of the um the Vertigo sampler um publications? Yeah, one of those like they 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 first collected it in a black and white like a digest version of mm -hmm. it. it was like way back when, and then maybe a couple of years ago they did this new version of it yeah interesting yeah. well cool and so how did how did you come across the radar of the dc execs i sent them my portfolio right after i uh, was done with school mm -hmm. um, and where'd you go to school yeah the Rhode island school of design RISD. RISD that's right. okay okay so uh, eric white's a friend of mine and um eric white was part of that that class at RISD that kind of really gave RISD the reputation okay. that they they earned in the um the late 80s and early 90s um, Eric just got a volume published by Rizzoli. Uh, he he we were one of the first galleries that showed him, but um, really started breaking the mold about how to think about illustrative art. Um, I tell people who are interested in illustration and then taking that into a fine art direction that you can go almost anywhere to learn your trade, but if you're going to get a master's degree, it's got to be from one of seven schools. And the two that are top of that list are a master's degree from RISD or a master's degree from UCLA. And then you go down into some of the deeper art schools. So CalArts, Otis, um, Art Center, um, Occidental, and then Tufts on the East Coast, uh, Yale, uh, Harvard now is, is becoming a, um, a big place to have um, your MFA from. And so what years were you at RISD? Uh, well, I, I think I graduated in 2001, so it must have been 90... Eight to two zero zero one. Wow! Yeah. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Now, I can only imagine what the regimen was like back then. Um, what types uh, of classes were you taking outside of illustration? See, I, I was a transfer student actually, so I I really finished a degree in another college uh, before that. So when mm. I went to RISD, I was very focused on just doing illustration. See, smart, go there last. <laughs> you know, get, get get the grunt work in at a cheaper and easier school. And then tear oh, your hair out oh, at, the, at the end of the line. Well, I actually did philosophy at Cambridge, so I'm not sure it was cheaper or easier. Yeah, that is not easier. Okay, I stand corrected. So, um, 
So that's that's quite a circle. It is. It is.、Um, I actually done my first comic while still in college in the UK, and、mm-hmm. I think the experience of doing that comic and sort of the satisfaction I got from it、uh, made me pretty sure I wanted to do something arts related, and that's how I eventually ended up at RISD. Wow! Wow!、Yeah. And so you you send out a portfolio, and obviously they're paying attention,、mm. and they see on the resume on your CV that you just graduated from RISD. It's like, oh, okay, you know, and you know, right, very close by, and in New York City, you've got your Pratts, and you've got you know. SVA and which is a huge recruiting school for Marvel,、mm. um, but at DC, always looking for the more fine art bent. Hiring somebody from RISD seems RISD seems like a, a really great idea. And so, how long was it between that first work with Mike Carey and then the next work that you were picking up?、Uh, the dates escape me. I think the, the next big project I remember would have been probably Wonderland.、Uh, that was with SLG and, and Disney Press.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the dates, like slave labor graphics. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Danvado. Yeah, and、um, years ago when we would go to the Bats Day, which is like the Goth Day at Disneyland,、um, slave labor graphics always had a presence there. Like they sort of understood that connection between what they were doing, which was sort of this amazing candy goth, black and white indie zine type thing, and the appeal of that to both Disney fans and then the appeal to Disney. On the way back, so、um, yeah, another kind of interesting little earmark there. So, at a certain point, you start putting together this this piece of work. That's right. How long did this take you?、Uh, I think we announced it in two zero one two. I was working on I think the Shadow Hero at the time, so、mm-hmm. I started research while I was doing that book, and、um, I, I'm going to guess that once I finished the thumbnails, it took me about a year and a half to do the actual drawings. Of the actual pages, and so a year and a half in, who do you first pitch it to? It's it's got quite a complicated history.、Um, Pantheon published it this year,、mm-hmm. uh, this, just this last March. But the the book actually came out in Singapore last May,、um, and I, I had the idea, this idea for for this book、uh, for a few years before that, I think.、Mm-hmm. But、um, could never quite figure out who would be interested in it. You know, history of Singapore, culture, fictional、mm-hmm. comics history seemed kind of Hard to pitch, so it wasn't until a single publisher ap- approached a bunch of us to pitch them a sort of local comic that I thought maybe I could find the right avenue for it. And now Pantheon's a division of Penguin Books. That's right. And so this is a huge publishing project. I mean, we we can talk about publishing a book through DC or Marvel, and in comics that's huge, but in ov- in the overall publishing landscape, DC and Marvel. Would be a three-story tenement compared to the Empire State Building that、really? is Penguin Books,、okay. and the the reach of a company like Penguin into the types of homes that don't necessarily have a lot of comic books. You see, the problem is the reverse is also quite true, though. I think、yeah. we were just talking about that recently that、um, they didn't pitch as much to comic book readers, so、mm-hmm. you kind of get yeah. So that you were afraid that it was getting pitched too highbrow, a little bit like like you would miss out on the comic shops generally. You know, people、mm-hmm. who read read Doctor Fate might not even know where I'm doing this book.、Uh, right, right next to Doctor Fate.、So. Right, right. But I think also now that the the most successful comic book shops are a great blend of you know the type, and I think the fan base too has changed so much over the years that there is a lot more of that kind of Starbucks casual fan. 
that may walk into a comic book store when they see something about comics on the news mm. or if they read about something that hits a headline um, in whatever news source they're, they're following. And of course, we know that the average age of viewers of the news networks tends to be in the 60s and above so that um, young people are definitely finding their news online. Mm. So um, whether or not they're reading the New York Times, I don't know, but that when when coverage for sequential art gets covered by a secondary media, it brings in that Starbucks crowd, you know, um, to go back to uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, um, that the, the fan base is not necessarily the fan base anyways that would be reading superhero comics. And we see that in, in the numbers, that the circulation numbers on superhero comics are nowhere even near what they were, um, say, 25 years ago. Mm. that um, we talk about this a lot in the program, actually, that, you know, the numbers on Spawn, like a 7 million or 9 million uh, circulation comic book, and um, even the Valiant titles uh, in their heyday before their recent relaunch were insane, that they were selling millions upon millions of different issues, and even their, what was considered a, a premium, like a gold seal um, cover of... I don't know, Archer and Armstrong or whatever, the amount of that special version of the comic is still higher than the average publication circulation on most comic books now. Right, yeah. So a premium comic from 25 years ago is less rare than just a run-of-the-mill week, you know, monthly comic. Yeah, there was during the days when people were speculating about comics, right? There was a lot of speculation. People, yeah, businessmen were coming in and buying long boxes every week. I want 25 copies Uh, of, you know you know, some forgettable title now. But um, so I don't think that you're necessarily missing the mark in um, in getting this book into the areas that it's getting into. I think what will happen is that it, as a hardcover book, is going to hit that graphic novel rack. Um, and it's not a superhero comic anyways. So it would be outside of probably the attention span of the average Dr. Fate fan, we would think. Um, we'd like to hope that everybody's reading everything. But that um, it's still not that much difference between, you know, the Marvel zombies and the DC zombies and what they follow and and don't follow. But I think that the style that you've used with slave labor graphics and the style you used with the old Vertigo comic and um, and with Dr. Fate and this are congruous. There is a similarity that is riding through your basic illustration style. Even when you change it to tell a story in a certain way, and that I think has much more to do with your panel layout than necessarily your character um, design, that it is an easy sell, that people look at it and it's it's got a certain manga-esque look, but you've got a lot of different styles in this particular book. I mean, there's pieces of it that look like John Severn, you know, in telling a certain story, which harkens back to Will Eisner. And you've got a very big nod in certain places to, to people like Tezuka and people like Wallywood. And Kurtzman as well, I think. And Harvey Kurtzman, yeah, of course. And I mean, you know, and obviously Severn and, and Kurtzman were contemporaries working mm-hmm. at EC Comics in the 1950s and then both worked forward at Playboy. But that, um, you know, that you've got a really great mix. And so when you tell a kind of humorous anecdote, you may use a more humorous style of illustration. And when you say something a little bit more serious there'll be something a little bit more serious in the background illustration as opposed to the foreground that um, I don't think is lost on a sophisticated comic mm. book fan, but that may just make it an easier storytelling mechanic for people who didn't know what they were signing on for. 
Yeah, I think that there was one of the main challenges for the book. Like, there were so many parts of Singapore history that I want to tell, mm-hmm. and you had to kind of find the right fit, the right sort of medium genre to, to kind of tell that story. So it took me a while to figure out each section, um, like how exactly to to tell that 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 particular narrative. And so, if we go even further back, and I, I'm I'm also fascinated with history, and I'm also fascinated with the history of the place that I grew up in, and um. I grew up north of Boston, Lynn and Salem, Massachusetts, and it has a very particular dark and early history in the history of the United States. And, you know, Salem is now kind of the Halloween capital of the world because of, you know, they, they hung witches there. And um, it was something they didn't kind of get around to monetizing until recently, like within the last 25 years or so. But that um, that interest in history is something that is always kind of nagged at me and pulled at me and makes me interested in learning new things. Were, was your interest in history catalyzed by your parents? Was it a teacher you had? What was it that, that made this such an important project for you? I, I think I've had a general interest in history for a long time, mm-hmm. but, but even growing up in Singapore for all, all these years, um, sort of my awareness of the history of Singapore was, I think, a little bit basic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what compelled me to to do this book was just the awareness of how little I knew about it, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that there was this general sense that you know Singapore is, is unusual in the sense that we had we have had one party in charge for fifty years, yeah, which is uh you know um, I don't think you've seen it anywhere else, and and it's, it is essentially a democratically elected government, right? Um, it makes it unique for a democratically right. elected government yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah. to a communist yeah. or a um, a royal that's state. Right. So so being in charge for so long, they've had a chance to tell their version of history for the last fifty years, right? And uh, I think that I I've been aware that there's sort of a alternative uh, version or maybe a more inclusive version that, that they haven't told. And I wanted to kind of explore this in this book. And um, I, I found a lot of things I didn't know while doing the research. Mm-hmm. Really. What do you think was the most startling thing that you learned? Probably would have been the fact that um, one of the main characters I cover here, uh, the politician called Lim Chin Xiong, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of his significant role he had played back in the 1950s and 60s, which... Uh, I think it's completely lost in a lot of uh, younger Singaporeans just because we uh, he's been kind of whitewashed from history to a large extent. And um, explain that a little bit to people who are unfamiliar. Um, well, so in, in the 1950s when Singapore was trying to gain independence from, from the UK, uh, I think the two main figures involved in that were uh, Lee Kuan Yew who went on to become the Prime Minister mm-hmm. and uh, another politician called Lim Chin Siong who was a little bit more left, left-wing leaning, uh, sort of leading the trade unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a while they worked together, but eventually, you know, as this happens, they, they split up you know, in separate ways. And the PAP eventually defeated uh, Chin Xiong's party in the elections. And he was um, essentially jailed for several years, sent into exile, and, and kind of disappeared from history, I think, for the most part. So this is in that same period of time in Indonesia known as the Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, yeah, it's probably around the same period, and yeah. same thing. Com- communist pe- once you get labeled a communist, it's easy to kind of uh, um, write you off. You know, you, yeah. you're depicted as being an agent of foreign powers, and you know, not not really a real nationalist patriot. And why a lot of um, a lot of people who are escaping Europe at that time, um, you know, we know that a lot of German scientists came to the United States. Um, a lot of them wound up in South America. And possibly less known is how many wound up in Indonesia. 
and helped power up Sukarno's regime. And he was kind of like the, how do you explain a guy like Sukarno? I mean, Sukarno was kind of like a, a very adept politician in maintaining the divide between two very different ideologies and benefiting from it greatly. And there's no way that didn't affect the surrounding countries. And it kind of helped sustain the Cold War in that part of the world, which people don't even realize that it extends there. And I mean, you talk about, you know, trying to escape the control of, of England. And this is also when the colonial system is falling apart in Africa. So these years in different areas around the globe, and certainly by the time you hit like 1967, 1968, and you have your student riots in France, and you've got the Vietnam War, and, and the, you know, from the summer of love to, um, you know, the, the dissolve in, in Woodstock, you know, 67 to 69 in the United States, that the, um, the hippie movement, and then the kind of ugly hangover of that that goes into the Manson murders and, and to the 1970s and the changing face of politics here, that these similar changes were already happening also around the rest of the world. And I don't think that anybody in the United States is, is educated to any degree about what was happening in Southeast Asia. Uh, I think the reverse is fully true as well. I mean, we as much as U.S. culture has a... Uh been influential in, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think many of us know much about Quincy Adams or even even what Lincoln right. did to, to, to some extent. So it's we, we you know human beings tend to be parochial. You know we care about what happens around us and yeah. not so much what happens you know millions of miles away, thousands of miles away. Excellent, that's an excellent point. Well, that's a probably a good a good place to take a break really quickly. So um, we're going to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. And again. Um, anyone who has, would like to get a hold of us and comment on any of the, um, the programs that we have, we encourage you to send an email to info at popsequentialism.com. Uh, this is the Pod Sequentialism um, podcast, but it did, of course, grow out of the Pop Sequentialism blog um, and traveling exhibitions. And, of course, as we know, um, very much supported by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles and La Luz de Jesus Gallery. But uh, here's a word from one of our sponsors. Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me the very talented... Um, Malaysian, Singaporean. Um, well, actually, no, you are Malaysian and um, live in Singapore. No, I actually switched citizenship uh, a couple of years ago. So I'm born in Malaysia, but I'm now Singaporean. Okay, okay. So the Malaysian-Singaporean, uh, Sonny Liu. And uh, we're discussing um, his, his latest work, The Art of Charlie Chan, Hak Chai. And, um, and talk to me a little bit about creating a fictional character to tell a reality-based story. That was kind of always the, the central idea behind the book. Um, I, I've been reading, I think at the time when I first thought about it, a, a book called uh, History of Comics and Graphic Novels, I think, by a guy called Roger Sabine. Mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of an overall history of comics in the UK, uh, France, and, and in Japan. 
and, and the sense I got from that reading that that book was that um, in order to explain comics, you had to explain the history behind you know, the creators behind them. So yeah, it, I I kind of realized that if you flip that around, you could kind of tell the history of a country through its comics instead. Right. And, and Singapore having had a relative vacuum, like we, we don't really have a comics industry um, at least back then. Um, I think that that vacuum gave me the room to create a fictional character because it, it would have been a lot harder to do this in the US or Japan because uh, you would have to kind of create all these fake links between him or expl- uh, explain the lack of links between him and the real creators who were, right. who were there. So I think that that vacuum in Singapore gave me this this chance to create this uh, fictional character. Yeah. And even in the United States, be, because there's we expect there to be so much documentation mm-hmm that when we learn something new, there's automatically this great um, doubt, you know, that, that people are so married to the pantheons that they understand. I, I think one book that also influenced was uh, Seth's It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken. Which, which one? Uh, it's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken. Yeah. Right? So he Seth featured a, 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 a couple of strips from a fictional character. But for a while when I was reading it, I wasn't, wasn't quite sure whether he was real or not. And, I think I wanted to do a similar thing in this book in, oh, that's in, cool. just in that sense. Yeah, yeah and I mean, there, there's definitely that appreciation. I think that a lot of the people that enjoy Seth's comic work and, you know, are straight out of, you know, that post-American splendor type of storytelling. And that's very much the kind of comics journals, darlings. So um, I'm not sure if you've gotten much coverage from the comics journal yet, but I'm sure you will. Hopefully. This is right up their alley. I mean, this is, and in a way, it's a much bigger and more, it's easier to get behind something like this, that um, because it's a subject that most of us, and people who think, who consider themselves experts in the field, know so very little about a lot of areas of, of comic creation outside of the United States. And there are people who have a cursory history and interest in the UK, and there's certainly been a lot of publications and, you know, people that have studied manga and and there's a big divide in the United States between people who um who consider themselves manga fans and people who consider themselves comics fans, and I think that because of that, the circulation numbers on American comics seem lower. If you start to bring in the fandom for mangas because it's a different format and it, it therefore has a different kind of skew when you go through inventories and bookstores and online sellers, that um, there would be a much wider audience seen and viewed as, as being comic book fans, but that, you know, that there's a really good reason to give attention to areas that aren't covered. Like there's not a lot of books on South American comics and South American comics have been around for generations. Um, Alejandro Jodorowsky got his start doing comic books in Argentina and Chile before um, he became well known making films and then moving to France and, and being an even more famous and more powerful force on, on the face of science fiction and comic books. So to have any kind of record of the industry as meek as it is where you're growing up and where you're now living is something that people would seem to want to pay attention to. I hope so. I think there were, there were some concerns initially whether... Uh, you know, general U.S. reader would be interested in Singapore history, uh, and and I guess I kind of pin hopes on the fact that a book like Mouse or even Persepolis had done mm-hmm. well. That uh, a book that wasn't about the U.S. could you know find a big readership in 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 the U.S. somehow. Right, right. And now, tell me a little bit more about the other comic book work 
Mm. So Paul Levitz. Paul Levitz. Uh, Paul a legend. Levitz. Yes, indeed. You know, um, editor behind the, the recent Tashin book on the history of DC Comics. Great historian. And in my conversations with Steve Bissett, he said that while he had many things to disagree with Paul Levitz about, he felt that Paul Levitz was one of the few people in his experience in working in comics that really had the backs of the creators that worked with him. So how did you first meet up with Paul and how did Dr. Fate become a thing? Uh, our first meeting was actually in Singapore. Uh, he, he'd been invited by the Singapore Comic Con to, to come over to, to do signings and uh, we talked a little bit, I think. Um, and I think he'd been aware of my faith in Frankie uh, mm -hmm. even before we met. So we, we kind of kept in touch for a little bit and when the Shadow Hero came out, he, he kind of sort of saw that I could do superheroes because of that book and when DC asked him to do a, pitch a new book, he suggested my name. And, you know, I, I, well, the story behind me sounding is a bit complicated. I was a little nervous about doing a superhero comic for mm -hmm. DC. So I had initially thought I just agreed to doing a, a teaser story, a pitch story. But mm -hmm. they, they thought I agreed to doing the whole series. So they announced it before <laughs> I was even ready for it. Right. Yeah. That's funny. And how many issues did you end up doing? I've done about, I think right now I've done... Uh, 11 out of 12. I, I uh -huh. took a breather at 8, and I'm going to do another four more, I think. So they must, in some way, be thinking like, hey, we've got another Cliff Chang here. You know, another guy that wasn't necessarily known for superhero work, who was more known for his kind of street-influenced cheesecake illustration work, and his Wonder Woman was huge. It was a big hit. And so it's very stylized. It's not what the average, I think... Um, superhero comic fan was used to, but they embraced it. He became a big fan favorite. Really? And, um, and that opens the door for other possibilities. So that's a good thing. So the, the direction that you're going with in Dr. Fate and the line look is, is still similar to the, to the other work that you do, to the more reality-based work. It's really, it's just panel arrangement. It's just, it's going to be your layout, but the basic character development, um, the basic character design work is still along the lines of what you've been doing for quite some time. I mean, I, I don't think you can really escape your style to some extent. You can push it towards different directions uh, mm -hmm. to some extent, but um, you know, it's kind of like your handwriting. It's, if you're drawing 20 pages, you know, you can fake something for maybe five or 10 panels, but mm -hmm. eventually your, your style will come true no matter what you're drawing, I think. So since you left the U.S. after graduating college. Um, how often do you come back? Uh, I want to say maybe once every year if I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. So I, I've, got, I've been to like comic cons and sometimes to visit my sister. And last year I was here for a DC workshop. Mm -hmm. So your sister lives here? Yeah, she's in San Francisco. All right on. Yeah. And so the um, have you been to the comic conventions up there? The San Jose Festival is now the um, Silicon Valley Comic Con. No, I've only been to San Diego and New York Comic Con. Really. Okay. Yeah, you you could be a big a bit. You could get them to pay your way to visit your sister. Probably, we hope. Well, you know, from from our voice to the ears of those who make the decisions. So, the, what do you think has been the most interesting thing that you've encountered um, while being on tour with this book? Well, the Mocha Fest was a real eye-opener, uh, just in the sense that in Singapore, we'll never have a big indie fest like this. Mm -hmm. We have Comic-Con, Singapore Comic-Con, but it's mainly the mainstream stuff, the Marvel and you know a lot of movie stuff. So mm -hmm. to see a big uh, independent festival is really, really cool. Yeah. And so that's sort of like um, a like ape 
Like Abe, I have heard good things about Abe too. Abe, and maybe even Toronto, I heard it's got a Toronto's on the hook. Yeah. yeah, and their their film festival is if if you ever get a chance to go to the um the the Phantas is it Phantasm Fest? The Toronto Festival. That's Mon- Montreal. Montreal, I think, has um the F- Fantastic Fest, which is like a, a horror movie convention that lasts a week and it takes over the entire city the way that San Diego Comic-Con takes over San Diego. But it's in one of the oldest cities in North America and people are speaking French and the films are just so crazy. It's like the most violent and off the hook stuff next to some of the funniest and wittiest stuff. And it's just um, a real experience. I've, it's been years since since I got to go and, and when I was running Panic House, we would I got to go one year to an acquisitions mission to see if there was anything to pick up. And my focus was mainly on, on Asian cinema. So it was, um, it was less for me to pick up there. All the big Japanese films had already been picked up by, by major distributors. And even at that point, I think the, you know, the Korean horror film industry had blown up. We picked up a film outside of that festival, which was, which was nice. What's your favorite Asian horror movie? My favorite Asian horror movie is probably still quite on. You know the um the nineteen sixty um classic um um horror film, which is an anthology. It tells four stories. Um, one of which was remade in the Tales from the Dark Side movie. Um, the look of the film was very much copied by Francis Ford Coppola in the kind of shadow box opening of his Dracula, and the um it was all done in studios, and none of it was shot on location. So it has this amazing otherworldly look that MGM musicals have, you know, from the 1950s. But as a Japanese film, you know, the cinematography is just completely, it's not an oversaturation, it's a perfect color palette. And um, the transition from wide wide shots to close-ups is, I mean, you could teach a class on that alone. Um, Criterion ended up releasing it on Laserdisc way back in the day. They released it again on uh, DVD. And it was the first time that it had been restored to its original running length. And the stories were from the the Quaidon ghost story book by Lucario Hearn, who was the Irish sailor who um, was one of the first people to visit um, Japan before it really opened up its borders. And he traveled the countryside collecting ghost stories. Cool. And it's an amazing film. Um, I guess when most people ask that question, they're probably asking, you know, modern um, Japanese yeah. horror films. But I mean, for me, you know, I was releasing, I, you know, I, I licensed um, exploitation films from the late 60s and early 70s and up through the modern era. And I released a Korean film called The Uninvited, which I thought was absolutely metaphysically horrifying. Um, and it's got the death of a small child in it and it's an on-camera death and it's shocking because you don't see that type of thing in American horror films. And so it, it reminisced in me, my feeling of seeing films like Don't Look Now, which is also about the death of a child and the metaphysical horror that, that is resulting of that. And while that's based on a Daphne Maria story, um, Nicholas Rogue's film takes it in such a completely different direction that you're really not sure what you're watching as reality or not. And I like films like that. I mean, I love, I used to love gore films when I was young and I kind of lost my stomach for it as, as they started to get like really, really nasty and mean in the last couple of years. And we'd host a, um, a movie night, our disturbing movie night. We used to host at my apartment like every Tuesday or Wednesday night. And we'd watch everything from, you know, Mermaid in a Manhole, you know, Japanese really graphic film to, um, you know, some of the, 
French film like Martyrs, which is just, you know, crazy home invasion, torture porn type film. And I still just really find myself drawn to creepiness. Like I can watch The Shining again and again and again. And Japanese horror has a lot of that metaphysical terror. But because the audience and the attention span is different, I find that a lot of Japanese films in comparison to say American films that the, we, we have a little bit more of an attention deficit mm -hmm. in the U S so that they get to tell a leisurely story. And so I like the ring television show, the TV movie of the ring better than the film, the ring. And I actually like the American remake of the ring as much as I like the, the Japanese movie, but I like the TV movie in Japan best that it feels more like the essence of the story. Right. But, um, you know, Cairo, I liked Cairo, I liked The Curse. Um, you know, I like the, um, and of course, you know, I like a lot of films by um, Takashi Miike. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you make seven movies a year, if, if even one of them is any good, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. So it's, it's easy to kind of get up on him. You know, he got very famous very quickly and, you know, his budgets would vary and he'd shoot constantly. So it was hard to make a really perfect film, but sometimes he still really nails it, which is great. How about you? Well, the first one I saw was that probably The Ring, the first Asian yeah. horror movie that I got. Was Ringu, yeah. yeah and that, that was, yeah, it scared hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's that metaphysical terror, you know, it, it's, it's something that that culture can identify with. What I wonder though is whether a comic could have the same effect on, on, a, on, a, on like the reader. Like, well, you've read Charles Burns' um, Black Hole, right? I've only browsed it. I've, I've bought the book. I must say I haven't read it yet. That to me is very effective in a comic book format. Mm -hmm. He has a very kind of workmanlike um, way of telling a story. And when I first came across Charles Burns' work, I think it was in the pages of Heavy Metal, he's doing the El Heavy Borba. Metal? Really? Yeah, he, he did the El Borba okay. stories. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and it's like a comedic, you know, like Mexican wrestling detective. And it was hilarious. It was like way over the top, like a David Lynch type thing. And to see him do that same style, that same bold black and white, you know, not realistic um, style and that independent comic style and tell a story about a venereal disease among teenagers that wreaks havoc on, you know, a a portion of the Northwest, you know, outside of Portland or something. It just seemed like the right thing at the right time. Like it was a new type of horror. It was a new type of, of, um, scare. And then it follows the recent film, the American independent horror film. It follows seems very rooted in that Charles Burns comic, not to say that it's plagiaristic, but that its ideas seem to spring from the same well and even the telling of it, and the and it seems to be placed in the '80s, and the music sounds '80s, and everything seems to be of that time, except one device that one of the people is holding, which kind of takes you out of it. Which reminds me of Alex Cox and his kind of surrealistic takes on um, historical movies. So it's, um, I think you can succeed absolutely. I mean, I love horror comics from the '60s and '70s. Uh, we, you know, the last interview that we did was with, with Christopher Sapp and we talked about collecting and how it's changed over the years and you being our age, you know, it, it's in, in the U S and he grew up in St. Louis. I grew up, you know, North of Boston and it was the same thing. It was like, we were experiencing the growth of a type of fandom and then the explosion of the, of the VCR and VHS industries and, and video stores 
and comic shops, you know, doubling and tripling for a little while. And then the, their transition from selling comics into being toy stores and record stores. And so it's, it captures something. And I think when you go back and read some of those comics that you will have those same feelings you had as a kid. But I don't know if kids today read the stuff that I grew up on, that they would find any of it even remotely frightening. Because I think the world is just more generally frightening. Well, thinking about it, there is another Japanese uh, artist. I think he did something called Spiral or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and thinking about it now, it, clearly it's possible to do horror comics. Yeah. yeah. And Higachinsky, who who did the um, adaptation of that, is um, a Russian. He took a Russian name. He's a Japanese filmmaker. And um, he's kind of like the Tim Burton of Japan in that it's, it's kind of horror, but it's more... Um, it's lighter, it's more comical, it's more candy goth, but that um, certainly, yeah, there's, there's been some horror manga for sure. But I think that, um, I think in America, it might just be more of a pragmatic thing that it's hard to make a living doing comics mm -hmm. and to do independent comics and even horror comics. I mean, clearly Walking Dead is a very successful series, but I, I don't know if you can really call that a horror comic. I think that it's more of a, it's almost a war comic. But if you go back to like Wally Wood and EC and Harvey Kurtzman especially and, you know, Al Feldstein, um, Harvey was one of the principals behind Frontline Combat and, right, you know, the yeah. war comics of the era. And there was a lot of horror in those comics, not just because every other comic that company did was a horror comic and the same guys were illustrating it, but that they captured the, um, the tragedy of war frequently in frontline combat and in um what was the other they had another war title that didn't last this long it's in the book i think i did this if you, if you use your party where, where they cover i haven't yet you know yeah. i just yeah. got the book yes okay. uh last night and i started um reading it today and i had a full day at work too at the gallery but um i'm, I'm going to commit the time i promise and um what's next for you um, well, I'm I'm still on Doctor Fate for a couple more issues. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, I want to do another big graphic novel. I think. Yeah. And is it possible to sustain a life as an artist in Singapore? You know, that's been something I've been wondering about for a long time. Um, I think the last couple of years have been pretty good because of Shadow Hero, mm -hmm. uh, Fate, and then this book. So it, it's it's looking plausibly viable. I think in the near yeah. future. So I'm I'm fingers crossed that this book does well here. I'll be able to, you know, get a good advance for the next book and, you know, work on something I, I want to really work on. You know, but it, it's tough. It's tough to, to, to get to the place where you can even start to imagine balancing commercial and personal work. Yeah, know? for sure. It's got to be just a wonderful dream to think about subsisting doing what you love in the cleanest city state in the world. Singapore, the cleanest country on the planet. The problem is, I think, as we mentioned earlier, buying a car is going to be really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very owning a car is very expensive in Singapore. I do know that from my my Japanese friends who live there and have worked yeah. there. Of course, being a citizen, you'll pay less rent, yeah. so that's nice. That's right. <laughs> well, hey, man, thanks for joining us on on this episode of Podsequentialism. It's been great talking to you and great meeting you, and um, and it's it's awesome to find out that you've actually visited the gallery before. Yeah, Lalo's Gallery. Um, I read about it in Juxta Post magazine. Yes, doctor, right? and yes. It was like one of the staple magazines in, in art school. Everyone will yep. look at it and see all this cutting edge artists. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Well, awesome. Well, anytime, come back. Come back and visit us. Uh, we'd love to have you back on the show. Want to 
be aware of what you're working on. And, and to everybody listening to this, I really highly endorse picking up this book. Um, if for no other reason, then it's unlike everything else you've ever read, that it's a really unique storytelling mechanic and in an industry where everything is almost uh, forcibly uh, conformed into a format that everybody can identify with in order to stimulate sales uh, and sales <laughs> there's your Freudian slip um, that the format does get stale and so when you see something that is completely new and is telling a story in such a way that you've never encountered it before but that it is an international and timeless tale that um, you really should stand up and support it. And I, I'm certainly going to. And I got a, um, a comp copy, but I'm going to buy a copy to give to somebody else as well. So if you haven't yet, I highly endorse, you know, Google, Google his name, Sonny Liu. It's L-I-E-W. Um, where can people find you online? I've got a website, uh, sunnyliu.wordpress.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So yeah, just Google will lead you to all those places eventually. Yep, and that's Sonny, S-O-N-N-Y and Lou, L-I-E-W. Well, thanks again for joining us, and I hope that everybody will join us again for the next episode of Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, and I look forward to speaking with you again.